0: My name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. This episode is all about religion, specifically Christianity. The Christian religion of the Merovingian period was different to the one we know today, and had some very interesting wrinkles. So let's talk about the machinations of Lucifer, and the potential rebirth of our Lord and Saviour in 6th century Gaul, in episode 68, Christ and religious cycles. Now we've talked about Christianity in this period before, and this episode won't be about the Arian heresy, the conversion of pagans, or some of the other major topics we've discussed in detail previously. This episode, we're going to focus in on a couple of stories Gregory tells us, and discuss what they reveal about religious life in the period. But, before we get into that, some context. The big breakout moment for Christianity in the ancient world was the crisis of the third century. Before the crisis, Christianity had been just one of many minor niche religious cults in the cosmopolitan Roman Empire. There had been some persecution of the Christians, but it was fairly haphazard and not ever really considered a top priority due to the scarcity of true believers. No one would have picked the weird cult of some dead carpenter to take over the empire. So little was known about the secretive Christians that some even thought that they were cannibals, misinterpreting the miracle of communion, to believe that the Christians literally drank the blood and ate the flesh of their human god. The rocky 3rd century would change everything. Devastating wars, famine, disease all racked the empire, bringing mighty Rome to its knees. At several points, it looked like the empire, which had dominated the known world for centuries, might actually collapse entirely. No one knew what would happen next. Into this climate of uncertainty and fear came the Christians. Like some modern evangelical sects, the early Christians spent much of their time predicting the end times, the destruction of the world. And to the terrified citizens of the 3rd century, these things began to ring true. Perhaps these Christians had the right idea after all. Helped along by this and a myriad of other factors, like Christianity's early appeal to the poor and to women, the weird cult of possible cannibals grew massively. But even with this exponential growth, Christianity was still far from gaining dominance in the empire. When the soldier emperors Aurelian and Diocletian managed to slowly piece the empire back together again, Christianity was one of a few major cults that had emerged from the crisis. It had to compete with a revival of Roman cults, like that of Jupiter, Hercules, and the emperors themselves, and a revival of Greek cults like that of Demeter. There were also new popular cults competing with the Christians, like that of Sol Invictus, the unconquerable Sun, or the eastern cult of Mithras, which was particularly popular amongst the powerful Roman army. One of the major factors that set Christians apart from their competitors was their resilience. During the reign of Diocletian, the Christians faced the first of the major persecutions, which were much more focused, efficient, and brutal than their predecessors. Diocletian and some of the emperors who followed him really wanted to squash the Christian faith, which they saw as an insurgent, destabilizing influence in their empire. But these persecutions utterly failed to quash the popular religion. In fact, in some ways they helped grow the faith. The stories of famous martyrs were powerful tools of propaganda. Persecution helped reinforce Christian narratives, and the simple fact that the powerful emperors couldn't end this religion helped buy its legitimacy. Now, eventually, Constantine would embrace Christianity and help transform it into the main faith of the empire. His support helped codify the structure of the faith and the church, consolidating the disparate and often contradictory teachings into an official creed with only a few heretical offshoots. By the end of Roman power in the West, the church was an organised, powerful institution with rules and hierarchies, very different to the secretive, insurgent cult of the 3rd century but the reason I've gone into this in this intro is to underline two key aspects of the early Christian faith. One, periods of hardship and suffering tended to result in explosions of Christian fervor, which helped the faith grow, but were also hard to control. And two, the faith was still fairly new, especially in places like Gaul, where much of the countryside retained at least some pagan beliefs and traditions. As it was still new, some of the old spirit of radicalism and egalitarian revelation survived, which was also hard to control. Both of these points are important to remember as we dive into the story of the Christ of Bourges. Now, we have talked before about the first emergence of the Bubonic Plague in this period as well. Sometimes called the Plague of Justinian in this era, it swept across Persia and the Eastern Roman Empire, causing massive devastation and death, especially in urban areas. Making its way west, over the old Mediterranean trade routes, it had reached Gaul. In Gaul, it had hit the cities hard, killing many. Like the plague of the Middle Ages, it ebbed and flared many times, causing outpourings of fear and grief whenever it struck. For context, some historians believe it might have killed anywhere between 25 and up to 60% of the population of Europe, tens of millions of people. The loss of life was so enormous that, of course, Basic structures began to break down. Famine, as it so often does, followed the disease. Where the people who usually grew, harvested, and transported crops were either dead or sick, yields fell, leading to mass hunger, which in turn made more people vulnerable to disease. In this context, we see a re-emergence of the original context for Christianity's growth. Famine, disease, war, all these things were present once again during this period in Gaul. The difference was that where the 3rd century Christians could point to the authorities, both secular and religious, and blame them for the hardships, now the authorities were Christians, both secular and religious. It's easy to blame a pagan emperor, but what happens when you're suffering? The authority is a bishop. Well, this is exactly why things were hard to control for the bishops like Gregory. They were meant to have the answers, and they had been working for centuries to remove other figures of religious authority and centralise power in their own hands. But the nature of their religion was more radical than its institutions, and religious fervour was hard to control. In a religion based in part on miracles and revelations, how do you maintain your authority? Gregory records for us a particularly useful example. The bubonic plague was ravaging the cities, he specifically notes the port city of Marseille, and famine gripped many parts of the kingdom. He singles out Angers, Nantes, and Le Mans in particular. In this context, Gregory opens the story with two Bible passages, a prediction of famines, disease, and natural disasters from Matthew 24-7, and a warning of false prophets from Mark thirteen twenty-two. This is the opening of the story of Christ of Bourges. Gregory claims that in this period, a man from Bourges went into a forest clearing to cut some wood. While working in the clearing, he was apparently attacked by a swarm of flies, which apparently drove him insane. Now, it was time for things to get spicy. The man wandered from his home into the province of Arles, where he dressed himself in animal skins and began to spend his time in prayer. Gregory tells us that in order to support this budding false prophet, the devil gave him the power of prophecy. But he also later states that although he knew the man's power to be by, quote, devilish arts and by tricks, end quote, he could also not explain exactly how he achieved his apparent miracles. Now, to be able to predict the future, And with his religious vibe firmly in place, the man moved again, this time to the area around Yavol in the south. There he began to preach, eventually revealing himself to be Christ reborn. He took a wife that he called Mary, and together they began to draw larger and larger crowds of worshippers. These worshippers bought out their sick who he laid his hands on to cure, just like Christ had before him. His followers began to give him gifts of clothes and gold and silver, but he handed all of these gifts back to the poor. As noted before, he predicted the future accurately, which helped grow his mystique. Eventually, he became so popular that everywhere he went, more than 3,000 believers followed him. Gregory even states that some priests were convinced and joined his flock. Then the man began to take on a more militaristic bent. He used his followers to rob people on the road, apparently distributing the loot to the needy as he went. Eventually, he reached the town of Lepuy, where there was a bishop named Aurelius. Before him he sent messengers, apparently consisting of men who danced naked through the streets. And the new Christ apparently began to prepare to attack the bishop. Aurelius decided to take action against this man. He gathered his toughest servants and sent them into the camp of this new Christ. There, the leader of the servants knelt at the man's feet, before grabbing him by his knees and holding him tight. The other servants then moved in, stripping the false prophet of his clothes, and grabbing the man, holding him close, at which point their leader stood, drew his sword, and killed the man in cold blood. Now Gregory carefully phrases this to make it seem like the servants did this on their own, and that Bishop Aurelius only ordered them to go, quote, find out what it all meant, end quote. He also does nothing to hide his disdain for this false Christ, stating, quote, So fell and died this Christ, more worthy to be called an Antichrist. End quote. But the writing on the wall is pretty clear here. Mary, the man's wife, was seized and tortured until she admitted that everything had stemmed from tricks and this man's hallucinations. Some of his followers dispersed but some also refused to abandon their faith, claiming that the man was Christ and that Mary shared in his divinity. Gregory describes these people as, quote, so far deranged by his devilish devices that they, quote, never recovered their full sanity, end quote. Now, before we fully discuss this story, I'll read out Gregory's final paragraph in full. Quote, Quite a number of men now came forward in various parts of Gaul, and by their trickery, gathered around themselves foolish women who in their frenzy put it about that they were saints. These men acquired great influence over the common people. I saw quite a few of them myself. I did my best to argue with them and to make them give up their inane intentions." End quote. So, we can see that while the Christ of Bourges was a significant example due to his claim of being Christ reborn, there were plenty of these insurgent religious figures. We can also see the hostility of senior clergy like Gregory, whose positions were threatened by these popular men and women. Now, as I've stated before, I am not a religious scholar and I also don't wish to offend anyone. We are going to discuss these stories specifically as historical events, and as historical events, they are particularly interesting. I think the story of Christ of Bourges makes very clear how wider phenomena like disease and famine, married with key aspects of religious faith in the period, produce these crazy outpourings of faith. But when these centred around figures who were not part of the church hierarchy, The bishops were firm, and sometimes vicious, in their determination to dislodge and discredit these figures. Aurelius' men had committed murder, and he had tortured a woman to discredit her and her dead husband. Gregory himself not only constantly twists this narrative to do the same thing, discredit them, but also attacks anyone who steps out of line in the period, indulging in sexist and classist tropes that are fairly rare in his work. This whole affair has reflections of the conflict between the church and the traditional wise woman of the countryside. The church in this period was powerful and jealously guarded their spiritual, social and cultural authority, alongside the secular authority that made them clash with kings and nobles. Whatever you think about organized religion and church hierarchies, I think it is indisputable that church figures were interested in power in all of its forms. Now, let's end with a quick discussion of the destruction of one of the most famous cities of antiquity. Yeah, if you thought this episode about religion might be lighter on the murder and destruction, I can only apologize. In 590 AD, Gregory received a visitor in the city of Tours. It was a bishop named Simon, who had travelled to Gaul all the way from the east. He told Gregory about the fall of Antioch and his imprisonment in Persia. Antioch had been one of the most famous and glorious cities of the Roman Empire, and one of the original centres of Christian power, alongside Alexandria, Constantinople, and Rome. The fall of the great city that Simon describes actually occurred back in 573 AD, meaning the man must have been held captive for many years. In 573, the great Sassanid Persian king Khosrow had swept through Armenia and the Levant, eventually capturing Antioch and swimming in the Sea of the Mediterranean. This was a massive embarrassment for Justinian's Rather less impressive successor, Emperor Justin II. Hosro Anashiravan is one of the great kings of Persian history, and he even built an entirely new version of Antioch in his own territory, famously going to great lengths to recreate the city down to the last detail, before populating it with captives from the old Antioch, just despite the Romans. But of course Gregory, through the voice of Simon, takes a dim view of the sack of the great city by non-believers. Simon recounts how the Persians had ripped through Roman Armenia, burning down churches as they went. When they captured Antioch, they apparently tried to burn down the church of the 48 saints and martyrs, but the holy building would not catch light thanks to the intervention of God himself. This is a rather normal story of a miracle occurring, Gregory loves stories about miracles. The reason I'm bringing it up is twofold. One, the story comes just before that of the Christ of Bourges, and includes a long passage about some faithful being protected during the devastating earthquake of 589 which hit Antioch. This shows how Gregory uses stories in different chapters to build consistent themes in his work. Here, those themes are destruction, crisis, but the power of the true faith and the eventual success of those who believe in the power of God. These are important to remember as they inform the reader throughout his sordid stories of the Merovingians and their politics. Second, though, The story is interesting for highlighting the remaining links between the East and West. It is tempting to think of the Merovingians as acting in a vacuum. The old Eastern and Western halves of the Empire were still interconnected. It is also tempting to think of the period in old stereotypes of dark ages with barbaric rulers and isolated, uninformed people. The arrival of Simon is a good reminder. That not only did trade links still connect Gaul to the rest of the Mediterranean world, but people did still travel them. The world was far more interconnected and cosmopolitan than we generally tend to think of it. Gregory includes the story of Simon because he feels the events in Antioch and Armenia are important context for his account of life in the Merovingian Gallic kingdoms when it is far from the only time foreign events appear in his work. That's it for this episode. I hope it has been enlightening. It's important to remember that religion, like all things at the time, was not static, and there were forces that challenged the orthodoxy established by the church. Not only pagan or Aryan ones as well. Even in Gaul, in the existing faithful, there was conflict. Next time, we're going to wrap up our study of Gregory's work. That's right, we finally reached the end, and we'll take a whole episode to talk about the end of his work, and what his intentions for it might have been. We'll reflect on the work as a whole, and talk about what's coming next. See you then.